Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 422. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 422 you're listening to. My guest today is Matt Leffler-Shulman, mastering engineer based out of Baltimore, Maryland. He's worked with John Batiste, Will I Am, Blondie, Ice Cube, and many others. We have a great conversation. Very much looking forward to you hearing it. Matt Leffler-Shulman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about holding the line. What do I mean by that? Uh, I'm talking about holding the line financially and uh, talking about what we charge. There seems to be no shortage of people who are basing their decisions about hiring one of us on price alone. And that's super fucking frustrating, I gotta be honest. I would like to think that people come to each one of us out there, no matter what discipline of audio we're doing, based on our skill set, based on their research, based on our track record, based on the desire to get it done right. You know, I know that when I go to find an electrician or a plumber or another tradesperson, I don't go searching based on price. I go searching based on reviews and what appears to be a reputation. And they tell me what the price is going to be, and I can either take it or leave it. And at least in the world of music, as I'm dealing with it, man, I've been running into a few situations lately where people are just like, yeah, well, this guy will do it for, and I know that that, that's been going on forever. It's not like it's a new thing. I know that. But I think my point of this rant is the concept that, and I'd be curious, feel free to email me your thoughts on this, Matt at workingclassaudio.com. What if we all kind of collectively just kind of said, yeah, for this job, I don't go below this rate or we don't go below this rate. I'm not talking about price fixing. We could still be competitive. I'm talking about like not letting outside influences, whether it's, you know, with all due respect to artists, but artists, record labels, anybody that plays a part in the decision to hire one of us, Don't let those people drive our price down so that we hit the bottom of the barrel because it can really kind of destroy our industry. Then people start getting out of it. Good people start getting out of it and they they start to go do other things because it pays better and then we have less people in the audio industry. It's something to consider. And for those of you that are younger, that are newer to the industry, this is really directed more at you than it is some of us old dogs. You know, I know that all my older audience, my experienced audience, you all know we have to set our rate. We have to kind of, you know, stick to our plan. And I know that you younger folks are trying to get experience and I get that. But man, you know, some of the lessons that we've had on this show over the years should teach you that we really got to keep our prices up. Dave Greenberg said, you know, if you're going to give a break, make sure that the invoice reflects that. And I thought that was great advice. Tony Maserati has talked about not doing stuff for free, orchestrating a trade, offering your value in trade for something else of value. And that doesn't always have to be money. It could be, you know, something, as I say, in trade, like, I don't know what that would be. Piece of gear, uh, the ability to stay at somebody's cabin in, in Lake Tahoe or the Sierras or something like that. I don't know, something. The point is, is that if you want an industry, we have to operate like the other tradespeople do. Plumbers and electricians don't give their shit away for free. Maybe on a rare occasion, if you know them, they might trade you something, but they have an industry because they have a plan and they value that plan. And if you don't want to pay for it, well, good luck. You're going to be doing it on your own. So think about it from that perspective. Just look at, look at the other trades and think about how they operate and then ask yourself, Shouldn't we be operating in the same manner? 
I know I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I was on Sound Better the other day and I put some bids out for some gigs and at, you know, kind of the lower end of my price point. And man, people just, you know, maybe it's me and that's, that's fine. If it's just me and they don't want to work with me, that's fine. But if they're doing it on price alone, man, I just, I guess I just don't want to work with those people. That, it's very frustrating. Oh, and by the way, uh, that was WCA number 418 with Dave Greenberg, where Dave was saying, you know, if you're going to do something for less, make sure the client knows you're doing it for less by documenting it on the invoice. In other words, let's say you're going to do, let's say your your typical rate for a mix is $750 a mix, but you're doing it for $250 or $300, God forbid. Um, if you have to, fine, whatever, make that, that's your call ultimately. But if you're gonna do that, make sure that you put it on the invoice so that they see, oh, I got a break. So that that doesn't become a pattern with people. So that they don't just think you're the cheap person. So I know younger, younger listeners, you don't have the experience, you're trying to build it up, but set your value, figure out where you're at and try to, try to stick with that. A guest I was recently interviewing that's gonna be coming up in a future episode said something to the effect of, I would rather do one mix at X amount, then two mixes at half that amount. And if you have to turn down work as a result, well, then you got to turn down work. So maybe that's where the, my whole concept of diversification of comes into play. But you know, if you're a mix person, you're a mix engineer or mastering engineer, stick to your rate. And you know, if you got to do other things like, I don't know, podcast editing or voiceovers or whatever, some other kind of audio work to make up the shortfall, do it. But don't be the cheap mastering person or the cheap mixing person or even the cheap podcast editing person. Just don't be the cheap person. Be, be the person that is valued correctly and stick to that so that everyone else can actually have an industry to work in. Because if we all just start like driving our prices to the least amount possible to like, you know, 50 to a hundred bucks, we devalue what we all do. That's my ask of you out there, all of you, pros and newbies alike. Don't do all this stuff for free. Let's let's make sure our, our industry in all the different disciplines of audio stays whole and, and keep our prices where they need to be. Please don't bend to the pressure of doing it for crazy cheap. And if any of those people out there ever says this to you new people, if they ever say, well, but I'm gonna give you credit, Fuck those guys, right? You're gonna get credit anyway. That's how this works. Yeah, sorry, just a little upset right now thinking about this thing, thinking about these rates and thinking about our industry. We have to stay together, folks. We gotta, we have, have to have a united front. Once again, if there's anybody listening that considers this price fixing, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about keeping a good rate based on your value, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, okay. Less coffee, take a deep breath. Yeah, okay. Now that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, 
you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Matt Leffler-Shalman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to meet you. You're coming to us from Baltimore, right? That's correct. And let's get some of the current stuff out of the way, and then we'll we'll backtrack and we'll go to your history. The audience can't see it, but if you could see Matt right now, you'd be well aware that he's a mastering engineer just because of all of the mastering EQs in front of him and all the knobs, you'd say, oh, that guy's a mastering engineer. So you're a mastering engineer in Baltimore and you rent a building, you own a building, it's in your home. Where is it? It's it's in my home. Yes, correct. Is it in the basement or on an upper level? It's in the basement. I'm so envious of people with basements. We lucked out in that I would say six years ago, we had a flood and it destroyed the basement that we had. We got a ton of insurance money and we just kind of held on to it. And long story short, I had a recording studio for 15, 20 years in in a building not too far from where I live. And we left that space. We went overseas for a couple of years and then we came back. And at that time, and I was thinking I wanted to switch gears and get more into mastering. And, you know, we had all this money left over from the insurance claim. So we said, hey, let's just do this. Let's put it in the house and dump all this money into building a studio, for lack of better words, from the ground up and build a, a mastering studio. So um, I sort of lucked out and the, the timing was just right for everything. So, yeah, I lucked out. I'm, I'm really happy with my space. Oh, that's awesome. Did you dig deeper down than to make the ceilings higher or did you just no, leave the- No, no. I mean, there are actually a lot of people in Baltimore who do that, who have very shallow um, basements uh-huh. and you just get into a lot of problems. I didn't want to deal with that. I worked with what I had in terms of height. The grass is always greener. There's always a studio that has higher ceiling, you know, a better sound. I worked with what I had and I have a pretty flat room. I'm very happy with the way my room sounds. So, yeah, I mean, I I think we have eight foot ceilings here, maybe eight and a half. I obviously would love a larger room as everybody would, but no, I'm super happy with it. That's awesome. Well, let's get into the backstory here. Tell me about your upbringing. Well, you know, I I grew up in the suburbs outside of D.C., played in tons tons of bands and was a drummer by trade, I guess. I played in, in bands and recorded all the bands I was in. That sort of sparked my love of recording music and music itself. I went to school. I started in University of Hartford studying music, and that was definitely not for me. The whole studying music, waking up at 6.30 in the morning to have a slave-driving music composition or music theory professor yell at you. So that was definitely not my thing. (laughs) Got out of that and eventually went to Tennessee, to Middle Tennessee State University to study music production and then eventually got a music business degree from there. Sort of had a fly by the seat of my pants 
studio recording nights and weekends at our house in D.C. And we did that for a couple of years successfully, was busy. And then at some point we just decided, hey, my wife and I, I should say, we said we just wanted to do something different and quit our day jobs and start a business together. And we sold our house in D.C., moved to Baltimore, which is where my wife Emily is from, and opened a studio in Charles Village and was very successful there for about 15, 20 years. And then that sort of gets us to about five years ago. <laughs> you mentioned your wife, the we in that that story. Is she involved in the studio? In terms of audio production, no. Although she did have her hands at editing, I don't want to say a podcast. It was like an interview session. We did a bunch of, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like sort of a time capsule for a school years ago, and she did all the editing for it. So she has a background in audio and video, but... For the most part, she was like running the back of the house, taking care of the money, doing a lot of the marketing, so that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, we complimented each other in that aspect. I want to go back to Middle Tennessee. So you left music school, but then you were like, oh, I'm going to go to Middle Tennessee State and study audio production. Like, where did that come from? It seems like such a radical, I mean, not the, the jump from music to audio production, but like where you were you know, and then jumping ship and then going down to Tennessee? Well, at the time, there were two schools that had audio production degrees where you could get a four-year degree. Middle Tennessee State had one. And if I remember correctly, I think it was Berkeley had a program. Mm. And I was sort of enticed with Nashville. It's sort of like the underdog, maybe, the underdog city. The courses looked great, you know, I never thought I would go to college. You know, my parents went to college. I was sort of like set to go to college. But after University of Hartford, it just kind of didn't seem like it was my thing. And then I found, actually, my father found Middle Tennessee State University. And then it turns out another friend that went to University of Hartford also left and then ended up at that school. So it just kind of seemed like the right thing to do at the right time. And having that music business degree has helped me immensely having a business background. I mean, any business you do, you have to have some sort of good sense with what you do with your money, especially in audio. So yeah, it's been very helpful having that degree. Well, tell me about that. How is it translated into real world applications for you? Just handling the money side of my business, just being straight with everybody and in terms of budgeting for things and not putting everything on a credit card. I mean, a lot of these things are just sort of no-brainers where, you know, you don't want to spend $50,000, $100,000 on gear on a credit card, but just running your business straight, starting building, doing it legit, having an LLC, not ripping people off, knowing how the business works uh, has been tremendously helpful for me. Do you feel that having an LLC is conducive to your particular situation? Because... I don't know. I've had the, these conversations with with my tax guy like over and over again over sole proprietorship versus LLC for for anything we do. And he always told me he's like, "Well, we're going to have have to set up payroll. You're going to have to do all these different things." And the state of California, of course, causes you to pay X amount of dollars. And he kind of talked me out of it. And I know that my situation in California is going to be very different from from Maryland. So, how does it work for you? At this point in my career, it doesn't necessarily make all that much sense because you you would have your LLC to separate your personal assets from your business assets. Mm. And the only way that that would sort of converge or those assets would be sort of at bay was if someone sued you. And you'd really only be getting sued for like errors and omissions kind of aspects. And number one, you can have insurance for that. Number two, in mastering, there really isn't like... It's not like there could be some vast error that happened in mastering. I mean, that's my job is like quality control. So if I'm not doing that, like I chose the wrong career and I will give that money back to the client. But for someone who's in more production where it's there's a lot of creative aspect to it, I think it would make more sense. There's ways you can save on taxes, too, with being an LLC and filing as an S-Corp, which is something you could talk about to your accountant with, where you can save on taxes that way. And that's, that's what we do. So we're an LLC, but we file as an S-Corp. I think 
That's also an Emily question <laughs> in that she handles all that. But these are the things that I've heard her say over and over again to other people. Right. I think you pay a hundred or 200 bucks a year. And still at the end of the day, for me, it's peace of mind that if at some point someone did sue me, my gear is in my room and my space is sort of separate than my personal life. Right. Now, for those that don't know what errors and omissions are and errors and omissions insurance, could you give your explanation of that? Yeah. So let's say you're in advertising and you are designing a coupon for Kellogg's and your coupon says $300 off and you make that mistake, but it was supposed to be $3 off, but the, the designer did $300 off. Guy goes in and sues Kellogg's and say, hey, this coupon should have been $300. If the designer had errors and omissions insurance, they could just say, oh, you know, it was a mistake. And then the insurance would take care of the claim. Right. Okay. And generally, I mean, in audio, I guess if you mastered something and somebody beyond you did not proof it, did not check it, and there's a big, a big glitch in one of the songs and it goes out and they press like 5,000 pieces of vinyl, that's just kind of a tough one to recover from financially because the vinyl A is so expensive and there's all these physical copies out there. Now, having that happen, case in point, there was a, and I won't name the artist just to be professional, but there was an artist recently that I was made aware of it, that if you go and listen to their Atmos mix, somebody left Simpty time code running through the center channel streaming off of Apple Music. And it was on every song. It was crazy. Like you hit play and then you get that crazy, yeah. empty sound. And and that, and that was not an artistic decision. Clearly not an artistic decision. Ouch. But obviously that's something one could recover from because you do a takedown, you put it back out, you're good. So the errors and omissions can save you in the physical media world. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. And hopefully in the digital world and streaming, they, somebody wouldn't see you over something like that. Totally. And and there's in the process of mastering or making your record, there's so many checkpoints along that process where it should get checked. <laughs> where do you think in the world of mastering, like when people make mistakes, it seems that it's simply them just not listening to the final product, to listening to what they're about to send the client. Absolutely. And that that's probably what happened. I mean, obviously that's what happened. No one listened to it. They just assumed whatever was exported was what was supposed to be out there. And that's why they pay us the big bucks is to listen to the music. That's a big part of mastering is listening. Yeah. And I think that people can get a little lazy sometimes with offline bounces and, oh, I'll just run it and I'll go make a sandwich and I'll come back and then I'll send it to the client without proofing it before it goes to the client. Absolutely. And, and you have to do that. So you, you ran the studio for 15 years. Tell me about that experience, what you learned from that. And then I'd love to find out like what led you to mastering. Sure. So, so we had the studio it was in a row house in Baltimore. If the listeners are not familiar with what a row house is, it's, it's sort of specific, I don't know, maybe to the East coast. And it, it's basically like a townhouse. It's like a small brownstone that would be like in New York or in San Francisco. But they're sort of like houses that are kind of cookie cutter in a row. So we built a studio in a row house in Charles Village. We were pretty successful. At the, at the time we moved here, we were moving from D.C. And Discord had kind of run its course. And I was coming up to Baltimore all the time to see bands. And there was just such a cool scene here with Beach House and Y Oak and Dan Deacon that it was just one of those things where I wanted to be a part of something, something cool mm -hmm. and interesting and forward thinking and inclusive. And Baltimore had that. They have the, the Peabody Institute, which is a, a music conservatory here. And there's MICA, which is the art college. And I feel like those two entities sort of overlap a lot, especially with music and art and became such a cool music and arts city. And I got to ride that wave of all those really cool bands coming through. So yeah, the, the, the studio itself was, was really interesting. It was three floors. The studio was on the first floor. The second floor had some offices and lounges and like a little practice space. Mm -hmm. And then the third floor, there was a friend of mine who did post-production. So he had a studio up there doing post-production. 
and then there was a photography studio in another room. So it was sort of like, sort of like a warehouse, sort of like a factory with lots of people coming in and out. And it was a cool space to be. I, I loved going into work. But with every, you know, positive, there also come some negatives. And after a while, you working on people's records, you're feeding egos, you're trying to get all these bands to, to work well together when sometimes they don't always get along. And the producer, the engineer sort of has to play the psychologist a lot of the times and, and work with all these different personalities. And it, it, it takes a toll on you mentally. So I, I don't want to say I burned out, but I think I... We made that decision to go overseas and sort of switch gears. And I think we did it at the right time before I burned out. So we went overseas and I did remote mixing and mastering. And my wife is a web developer, so we were able to do that. She could do that from anywhere. Yeah. Where did, where did you go overseas? So we started in Spain. We were there for 89 days. That's as long as we could get a visa for, for 90 days. Then we moved to Croatia. So we were in Split in Croatia. Wow. Yeah. So we, we sort of had to go like in and out of the Schengen zone so we could do the 90-day visas. And then we were in Budapest and then Romania. So yeah, it was a journey. Wow. That's super cool. So what drove the decision to go overseas? We just needed a change in our lives. I was starting to get burned out and we have children. We have two kids. They're now 15 and 11. And we always wanted to do a trip like this for our children. And they were sort of at a crossing point where it just made sense that we could do it. Mm. We could switch off and homeschool them for the year and then come back fresh the following year. And it, and it worked out really well. The kids have so many great memories, too, with being there. Wow, that's, that's awesome. And as far as making a living, so your wife is doing web development work and you're doing remote mixing and mastering... How did you find that dynamic financially living in, in these different countries and basically taking a family of four along for the ride? How did that work for you? Financially, it was a lot easier than I sort of anticipated it, be it that you think when you go to Europe, it's expensive to be there. And it is when you're vacationing. But when you're living there and you're going to the grocery store every day and you're not eating out, it's actually a lot cheaper to live there than you'd think. We would rent an Airbnb for a month and it's a lot cheaper than, say, six nights. And we also rented our house here in, in Baltimore. So that offset some costs, too. That, yeah. Okay. There we go. This is sort of at like the heyday of Airbnb. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And as far as the gear you took, what was the main setup that you relied on for your work? I had a, a DA and headphones and Logic. Okay. And yeah. a laptop, right? Yep. Super simple. And then what drove the decision to come back to the U.S.? Well, we had to come back because I got plantar fasciitis, so I like basically couldn't walk. Mm, and yeah. um, I was in Romania and the doctor there was like, oh, your foot's dying. You need to have surgery. And we're like, OK, we're coming home. <laughs> so that was sort of the, the tipping point. But we had been there for almost a year and we were, we were just ready to come home. At that point, we we figured out what I would be doing in terms of the business. And at that point, the idea of building my mastering studio in our house had come to fruition. But at the same time, I was still of the belief that I'd be recording bands, but in other people's studios. And and I came back and I did do that. I did that for a couple of years until COVID happened. And then that sort of sealed the deal for me doing mastering full time out of necessity and also just out of a love for it. Mm. Now, going into mastering after having been a tracking engineer, mixing engineer for, for some time, did you feel any kind of sense of, oh, I'm leaving these, these other things behind? Yeah, to a degree. There are definitely things with recording bands that camaraderie that you get with a, with a band that doesn't necessarily happen all the time with mastering. When I was mixing and, and producing records, I always say the grass is always greener. It's like, I would always say, an ideal job would be a bartender. Guy sits down at the stool, give him a beer, he hands you a five and you're on your way and that's it. That's the transaction. With, with recording a record, it's like they're there for two weeks, you're working on mixes for an extended amount of time, and it goes on and on and on. And I kind of feel like I found this happy middle ground with mastering and that it is these sort of short chunks with people where I get to be social with them. We get to listen to awesome music, 
but it's not this drawn out month long process that, you know, at times can be draining. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting analogy (laughs) being the bartender. Yeah. Short-term relationships. Yeah. And, and a lot of my clients, they are long-term relationships, but it's like, it's like bite-sized hangouts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you made the decision just to wholeheartedly dive into mastering at that point, all the gear that I see in front of you now, did you own all that? And did you say, okay, I'm going into mastering, therefore I'm going to buy all this gear and I'm going to make this wholesale change? Well, let me rewind a little bit. While I had the studio, I would also master records, but I would say I was not a mastering engineer at that point. If someone came to me and said, hey, can you master my record? I would say yes. I mean, I sort of didn't really know all that much back then. I've learned so much since then. So all this gear is sitting in front of you. Did you have all this gear before? No, I had some of it, but a lot of it was purchased through selling a lot of the recording gear I had and tracking gear I had. Okay. Okay. And for the audience, Matt's got a bunch of analog gear in front of him. Did you make a conscious decision to go the analog route in spite of having done an in-the-box mastering process in the past? I did. It was definitely a conscious decision in that I come from the days of analog and doing things with your fingers and not necessarily, you know, clicking with a mouse. In the end, I feel like I can get there a lot faster than I could have if I had a doll where I was doing everything with plugins. It's not to say you can't do it. You absolutely can. But I feel like people who are younger than me that grew up in DAWs and in-the-box processes can get there much faster than I can. I get really distracted with plugins and I, I have to almost wear sort of like censoring glasses where I, I organize my plugins and I delete ones that I don't use and I have five or six ones that I use all the time and like that's all I see. Because if I have a gigantic list of plugins, I want to try them and see what they do and how they sound different and at the end of the day, it's just, it's distracting and it just takes too much time. Mm, yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So in your system, do you have a pitch and a catch system as it's referred to? No, yeah. It's it's one computer. One computer. Okay. Yeah. Is everything being run as an insert in a DAW or how does it work for you? No. So I I use WaveLab. So there's like a track on WaveLab where it's like it's pitching the audio and then another track that catches it and it goes through my Maslick transfer console. Got it. Yeah. And then that transfer console has inserts that pull in the gear that I want to use. If I was in the same position as you making that decision, I think that I would be not paralyzed, but just a little nervous about like, okay, well, 
all the gear that's sitting in front of you, I know that that stuff costs a ton of money. So how did you make your decision on what gear you were going to use? A lot of it just kind of depended on what I needed and trial and error. Sometimes I was able to demo a piece. Other times I would try it out. And if I didn't like it, I would sell it. So I don't want to say there's a constant change in my gear, but in the beginning, it was like I would try something, didn't like it, sell it, or I'd like it and keep it. It's an, it's an evolving process, but I haven't really changed my setup in a while. Oh, yeah. I, I, I take that back. I did pick up the Neve Master Bus processor a couple months ago. Okay. Well, let's talk about having a mastering studio in your home with a family of four. As far as when you rebuilt the basement after the flood and you set that up, did you do anything acoustically purposeful in the reconstruction of the basement? Yeah, absolutely. So we did a box in a box. So everything is completely isolated. Ceilings, floor, walls. We also waterproofed too, which I cannot recommend enough for anyone doing anything in a basement. So tons of treatment. I have real traps all over the room, diffusers, you name it. Okay. Some of it's off the shelf. Some of it I built. As far as finding contractors and, and people to do stuff, did you hire out or did you do this on your own? We definitely hired out. We have a, a contractor that worked with us. I have a really good friend who's an electrician and he helped me do all the electrical work myself. So that saved us a ton of money. And what about the conversation with the contractor? Did the contractor have any experience doing anything like this? And if not, what did you do to educate them? He did. He, he'd actually built studios before. Okay. Yeah. So it was a lot of the stuff that we were talking about, like decoupling walls and membranes that would move. Like he, he totally understood all of what we were talking about, what we were trying to accomplish. And what was your process of finding that person? Well, he's worked with us on our house before, and we found him from another engineer that I know that helped. That guy helped him build his studio. So it's just someone we know. Okay. Yeah. Relationships are everything, aren't they? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small world too in Baltimore. Do you take in-person clients there? I do. Yeah. Not usually if someone just calls me on the phone and says, hey, you know, can I come in? We have to build up a rapport. Okay. So not just anyone off the street, but usually people don't ask to just come in. Usually it's like after we have a relationship, they're like, hey, can I come in next time? And after we have that rapport, I have no problem with it. Yeah. How do you primarily get your business? My guess is word of mouth. Mm. Yeah, I would say that's 99% of it. I'm going to just tell you, audience, you've got to go and check Matt's website out. Number one, what I love about your website is it gives you a sense of your personality. As we discussed before we started recording, you try not to take yourself too seriously. And like little tiny things just catch my attention, like that you've worked with artists from Maine to Spain to Ukraine. I love that. And then if you go to the gear section and look at that and you scroll all the way down, let me actually, let me go there. And you scroll all the way down and you're, you're reading through all this gear, you get to the end and there's a statement. If you made it this far, you're a serious nerd. I salute you. And I won't tell you what's there, but you have to go click on I salute you and that there'll be a little surprise for you. The other thing that what I really like about this site is how you highlight not only the the some of the masters that you've done, but how you highlight the producers and mix engineers that you work with. I thought that was a real nice touch. I think that's intensely important. I mean, those are the people that make the records sound the way they do. And I work in tandem with all of those producers and mix engineers, and I'm proud to work with them. So why not highlight them on the website? Yeah, I think that that's, that's really great. Yeah. And then your nerdy stats. I love that, where you talk <laughs> about projects mastered, feet of tape use, years of experience, et cetera, et cetera. And my favorite of, of all of those stats is the oblique strategies cards pulled. I mean, you got to have it. You, you do. And audience, if you don't know what oblique strategies are, go to Matt's website, click on the link and click through to learn about oblique strategies, which I'll just tell you is a set of cards by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt, which you have to check out. It's, it's, if coffee is, coffee is certainly important in studios, oblique strategies, I would say is a close second to something that's great to have in studios. 
Absolutely. I, I pull a card almost every day. And yeah, as soon as I found out about it, and I might have actually found out about it from Tape Op, if I remember correctly. I don't know if it was an interview, but it almost changed my life. And maybe it did change my life in, in terms of, of process mm-hmm. and, you know, hitting that brick wall. So yeah, anyone listening, definitely pick up a, a deck of cards. So as far as your process for mastering now, you know, and I know there's just so many opinions in audio in general, mastering especially. And there's a lot of different viewpoints about how to do things, how to not do things and videos about how you're doing it all wrong. I'm going to show you the top 10 tips on how to do it right, et cetera, et cetera. How did you arrive at your process? Well, it's been a journey. I feel like everything is a learning experience. So I feel like if it sounds good, it is good. And that's that's sort of been my process all the way through. I also had a bunch of mentors that I could talk to or get a second opinion or have someone just listen to a track to make sure everything sounded okay. And coworkers, people that I work with on an ongoing basis, I have relationships with them and I could send them something and say, hey, you know, does this sound crazy? Does this sound okay? Everything in audio, it's a learning process. It's not like you've learned everything and like, that's it. You're always achieving new levels and learning. And if you're not learning, like maybe you should think about doing something else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a process. You know, when I, I do master and sometimes I'll get tracks where I listen to them and I just think, man, this is just like falling short of the finish line in so many ways. And I feel like there's, there's some people in the mastering world that feel like, well, I just, you know, I just do the, the very bare minimum and, and hold to that. And while it may be an unpopular view, I kind of dig in sometimes and try to really do what I think needs to be done to really make it shine in the best possible way. And I've gotten great results and great response from the clients that I do master for. Now, I don't hang my sign out as a mastering engineer exclusively. I'm kind of in that camp of, I mostly mix, but I do master. Where do you fall in this camp of, on on which side of the fence do you fall as far as like, you know, being very true to what was coming in versus being a little more aggressive? It totally depends on the client. It depends on the song. For the most part, I tend to stay on the transparent side, but that's something that I have a conversation with a client about. I talk with the producer, I talk with the the artist, you know, do they want me to dig in? Do they want to have a sonic footprint on this that's different or more intense or more aggressive? At the end of the day, it's all about their expectation. And oftentimes they'll they'll say, you know, just go with it. Do what you want to do with it. And sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. It really just, it depends on the song. Mm. And how did you arrive at the rates that you chose? It's a good question. This is also where business sense can come in, in handy. I sort of worked backwards and I figured out how much money do I have to make a year? How many masters am I going to be doing in a given time period? And I did the math and I sort of worked backwards from there and did the the low end of where I wanted to be at the time of where I changed over to be a mastering engineer full-time. And since then, I've ramped my rates up as I've gotten more busy. Yeah. Do you ever see the possibility of going back and either A, having a studio or B, tracking or or mixing? <laughs> Probably not. I feel like that's in the past. But that said, every once in a while, I'll get a call from an old client that wants me to mix a record for them. And I will for, for an old client that I had a good rapport with. If the songs are good, I'll definitely jump on that. But getting back in a studio, to me, I feel like it hasn't been all that long, but I just feel like I'm so out of practice with it right now that I almost would be lost. Because my DAW of choice right now is WaveLab, immersed in that DAW, every once in a while when I have to pull up Logic to open a session or listen to something, I almost feel lost in it. So I look back fondly on mixing and producing, but I feel like that was almost another lifetime ago. I know that we talked about the bartender analogy, but 
Is there something about mastering that appeals to you more than, than the tracking and the mixing days? Absolutely. Beyond the client relationship. I love the nuance of it. I love the small changes that you can make that can have such a huge impact on, on a song. And I love when I do that and the client hears it. That's the best feeling in the world is when I do that small change and they're like, ah, oh, you did that thing there. And it just, it opened up, it warmed up that spot or whatever they liked about it. It just, when we're sort of on the same page and, and the synergy is there, it just, it makes it all worth it. And do you see a fluctuation in quality of mixes that are coming your way? It's a good question. When COVID happens, people were obviously not jumping into studios. So a lot of people were home recording and th there was sort of this DIY aesthetic that happened for a while, but people are getting back into studios now and it's getting back to where it was before in terms of that. But I don't know. I feel like, I feel like with any, any industry there, there are cycles and you know, you had the eighties where everything was just insane and big and huge and it took you to a different world. And then the nineties came in and everything was like cleaned up, tightened up and it like it was more raw and real. And then the two thousands come through and pops back again and the big production and everything is a cycle. So I feel like there is a little more DIY stuff happening now just because it's so much more accessible and the playing field is so much more unregulated, so to speak, that anybody can get a DAW, anybody can buy an interface. You don't have to spend a million dollars to build a studio these days. And I think that's great. I think more music is out there and I feel like it's good and bad in that it's easier than ever to get your music out there. But I also feel like there's so much more music out there that it's, it's almost harder for you as an artist to get it to the, to the, to the ears. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, I think. Yeah. I'm curious, and I'm not talking about necessarily the music industry or the clients per se, but let's just like focus on the pro audio industry for a second. What do you like about the pro audio world and what do you dislike? What do you dislike the most? What do you like the most? Okay. So what I like the most is the analytical aspect of it all, where they can talk about gear for hours. And I, I love talking about gear. I'm a, I'm a super nerd, but there's also, I don't want to say there's like a division line. There's also a lot of people on certain forums that they just say these crazy things. And a lot of the times it just sounds like they're coming from a space where they've never even really recorded a band. And they just come up with these like crazy ideas. I remember years ago, I was on Gear Sluts and there was a studio building forum that I was talking about. And we were talking about floating the floor. And the guy's like, oh, you can't float the floor. It doesn't do anything. I was like, but it does. It's pretty simple acoustics. And, you know, it's just a lot of those, those people on those forums sort of, they really, I don't know, they make me depressed about certain parts of the industry, but... I don't know. I, at the same time, too, where the industry is at now is that you do have those forums and you do have all these awesome people in them. And that, I think, outweighs a lot of the negative aspects of it. And especially in mastering, mastering engineers are the nicest people I've ever met. In production and engineering and mixing, It's I feel like it's much more cutthroat. But in mastering, I feel like everybody that I've talked to on the forums in person, they've all just been so helpful, so nice, which it's a nice thing to have. It's a good community to be in. I see a lot of similarity in the mastering community as I do in the audio restoration and archiving community in terms of the camaraderie and the friendliness. Yeah, I could totally see that. And how they all kind of network with one another, especially in the world of audio restoration and stuff. Yeah, I mean... Back in the day, you know, if another studio got a record that I, I had worked with the artist prior, I'd be a little saddened by it. But now it's like, if someone else gets another record, that's awesome. It's putting food on their table. They're getting a cool project to work on. And if that person is so busy sometime, they might send me a project. Or if I'm busy, I'll send them a project. It's like, what comes around goes around. And I think having having a good positive attitude and just being a good person, I think, helps you have a better business and get better clients too. As we wrap up, one of my last questions is, is as far as the family, work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera, how do you manage your own household in terms of your work and your family and keeping the clients happy and keeping the family happy? 
Well, the good thing about not working in a studio where the client is there over your shoulder all the time, I can come and go as I please. So I can work all day, pick up the kids, do a little homework with them and come back to work afterwards before dinner. No problem. And that's pretty much is an ideal situation, right? Like you get you get your cake and get to eat it too. Yeah, I mean, in terms of knowing when to say when and when to like turn it off, I mean, with mastering, because the listening is so intense, there's really a timeline of I can only really work eight hours a day. At that point, after eight hours, my ears are done. I can't even listen to any more music. So it's good in that, that I can't work these 12, 18 hour days like I did when I was producing records. Yeah. So that's sort of built into it, which is wonderful. Well, that's great. I will, for you audience, we'll include a link in the show notes to Matt's website and uh, Instagram account. So you can reach out to him if you want something mastered or if you have a question, don't be shy. It's a great thing about my guests. You can always reach out to them, which I assume is cool, Matt. I'm, I don't mean to speak for oh, you. Absolutely. I'd love to hear from anybody, anybody and anybody all the time. Excellent. Well, thanks for making time for me. I really appreciate you answering my barrage of questions. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Well, you take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Matt Leffler Shulman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Appreciate your time. I want to thank the crew, including Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. If you want to reach out, you can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>